I would like to pray one last time as we pray for the Holy Spirit to come to anoint him as a preacher, you know, to anoint him as a teacher, but also to anoint our ears. So, Holy Father, this last hour is for you. We are your children, and I do ask that you would speak to us powerfully, boldly. There are words that are for our ears and our hearts, so may we be receptive. And we ask this in the blessed name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You guys, sometimes it's best to do a short summary of uh, what we've heard so far. So uh, why don't we do that? Why don't we take a moment, I mean just a moment, and give me one sentence, something that has stood out in the last day or so that you've heard that you think you can take home, and it's so memorable you don't need to look it up, it's so portable you can say it in one sentence. What would it be? Best preachers are the best listeners. Great line. Great line. Next. That's <laughs> a good line. Keep going. Die to self, connect with people. Yeah. Yep, yep. Anything else? I'm repeating for the sake of the recording, I think, so I'm not really echoing you. But other things? I'm sorry, it was one. Vocation and devotion do not need to be separate. That's right. You were commenting on that last night, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. That was kind of an eye-opener for you. That, that, that's great. Yeah, Lenny and I were talking about that after we went to the room last night. Yeah. Sometimes you say, should those really be bled together? And I think our conversation last night was, do we have a choice? <laughs> it just sort of happens, you know. Other things that you've heard? Wow. No right to preach if you don't love your congregation. Heard that just from Steve Elliott just now again. That was true. And I heard it from uh, Peter as well. Yeah. We'll do one more. Okay. That's right. Authority is a batting average. And I heard one here. Read. Read. There's a short one. That's right. One <laughs> word. That's true. That's so true. Wesley said, reader, quit now. That's a rough translation, but it's pretty close to what he said. Then he listed all the stuff we're supposed to read, and I quit. So, <laughs> oh, man, oh, my goodness. This last session is uh, one in which uh, we're gonna, I'm going to try to hijack the session a little bit. We've spent the last day or so talking about how it is that you preach and how important preaching is and all, all that's involved in it. If I can just spend the last uh, few moments of our time talking a little bit about what we should preach. And I know Lenny touched on that, but he was dealing with it more from the schematics or the matrix of how sermons are developed. I won't even come close to that. I want to deal specifically with the subject. Is that all right? And my hope is that when we walk out of this room in just a few moments, uh, we will be able to walk out with a fire in our heart and uh, something that is so fresh on our mind that we'll be able to go back to the churches and articulate that in a way that is consistent with our personalities and our language and semantics. 
We simply want to be who we're supposed to be, but we're supposed to say things that are true. Deciduous trees are trees that lose their leaves in the fall. I'd have brought one in, but it's been so long since I've seen one. <laughs> you wouldn't remember what it looks like anyway. But if you would hold up a leaf of a deciduous tree and put it next to the tree itself, you would notice something pretty interesting. There's a geometric design that is in the leaf that is replicated in the entire tree, both above the surface and below the surface. It's something like the Tao. C.S. Lewis said there's a Tao that kind of governs life. It's an ultimate reality that is behind all other realities. It's a way of saying that when God created everything, whether it is a plant or an animal, or a human, or the blessed church itself. It follows a pattern that is similar in all of the things that God has created. The essence of the thing and what it actually produces may be different But the life of the thing and the way that it grows is consistent, whether it's the season of year or whether it's a species of animals. It's the Tao. It's the ultimate reality that is behind all of these things. The Tao determines the deciduous tree. If you stand back and look at the deciduous tree, you'll notice that there's a a major trunk that comes up out of the ground that then goes into major limbs. And the geometric pattern from the trunk into the limbs is replicated from the limbs into the branches. Not only that, but if you were to follow the branches, you'd notice that the pattern that is established between the trunk and the limbs and repeated from the limbs to the branches is repeated again from the branches to the twigs. And it's repeated again from the twigs to the twiglets or something. And it's finally repeated in the leaf. In the major vein that comes up into the base of the leaf and then the way that the vein splits into smaller veins and then goes into veinlets. That pattern is reproduced from the leaf to the twigs from the twigs to the branches, from the branches to the limbs, from the limbs to the trunk. And there's one more thing. If you could get underneath the tree and dig below it and remove all of the dirt, you know what you'd find? The same geometric pattern in the root system that you see on top of the earth. Major taproot goes into smaller roots, goes into rootlets, it's almost, you'd almost think somebody designed the dumb thing. <laughs> Called a deciduous tree. 
and it has a lot to teach us about the church. If you wanted to change the geometric pattern of the deciduous tree, what must you do? Get a chainsaw? You'd have to change the seed. Because that geometric pattern that is expressed four or five times and ultimately reflected in the leaves and after the leaves in the fruit itself begins in the seed. If you want to change what's on the end of the tree, what's coming out on the surface, you got to change what's at the core of that tree's existence. Say, where are you going with this? For about the last 50 years, we in the church have talked about managing the growth and the dynamics of the church. We've been hard on ourselves, giving ourselves statistics that are quite depressing. We tell ourselves we are not producing the kind of disciples that we should be producing. And dude, we have a boatload of stats. I'll save you the boredom. You know them all. We have more discipleship material at our disposal at this time in the history of the world. Bookstore and internet. And yet we are not producing superior disciples. There's a problem here. And all of the talk that has gone on in the church has been about changing the limbs if we want to change the kind of fruit that we've been producing, we have to change the seed. I found myself uh, in a room once having supper about two months ago. I was with the Salvation Army in New York, and I was happened to sit next to a church consultant. He is 35 years old, and, and he runs around and consults big churches. And so I thought, you know, this would be a great time to get some free advice because I'm Dutch, and we're cheap, if nothing else. And <laughs> so we started having a conversation about how the church should be managed, and uh, uh, the more we got into the conversation, he was talking about demographic shifts and about the percentages and about the ratios and all of these things. And the dude's about 35 years old, and, and, and I'm in my 50s now. And about halfway through the conversation, I found myself thinking, um, I should know this stuff, but I don't know it. And, and I found myself wanting to impress him by telling them the stories that are happening in our church, because the stories are truly phenomenal. But I knew if I started to say it, it'd be artificial. I knew it'd be a form of self-defense that was rooted in carnality, and so I kept my mouth shut, but it bothered me until I went back to the room. And I sat down, and I was reading the New Testament for a message that coming Sunday and as I came across a passage in Matthew where Jesus talks to the Pharisees about the wine and the wineskins, and then it hit me, 
that the whole conversation that I'd had with that man, the area, the domain in which I had desired to impress him pertained to the wineskins. How do we organize the growth that is happening to our church? Watch my eyes so we can get even bigger. Here's my prophetic word for the day. Can we go back to talking about the wine? The church right now is not in need of leadership principles that tell us how to manage better wineskins. The church is in desperate need of new wine because what we're producing at the end of the tree is not consistent with the seed from which we say we came. Are you with me? So this session is about that seed. If people are doing what we're telling them to do, if they're believing what we're selling, then we need to change the message because the outcome is not as we desire. A few uh, uh, months ago, I pulled a collection of people in my church because as I said last night, we have a large gathering in our church and we have some really smart people in there. And they're smart in different disciplines. And so in this church, if you want to learn anything, you call a meeting that quite frankly headquarters would love to call because they're experts in so many fields and they're all in the church. So if you don't call that meeting with those experts and they're sitting in your church, you're dumb. (laughs) And so we called a meeting and I said, tell me what the holiness message is. Because we hear about this all the time, but the stuff that we're hearing is not, it's not jiving. It's not working. It's not clicking with the current culture. We pulled out a mousetrap and set it right in the center of the table and said there's a law of irreducible complexity and the mousetrap's the best example of it. It has only four parts. It has a base. It has a lever. It has a trip or a trigger, and it has a spring. Only four simple parts, but it's irreducibly complex. If you remove one of those four parts, the entire mousetrap fails. That makes sense? So I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if the holiness message is sort of like that mousetrap. And I wonder if there are a small number of irreducible parts that when put together create a fully functioning holiness message, but if you remove only one of those components, the other three are rendered impotent. And I wonder if that would explain why so many churches who say, but I am preaching holiness. 
are not seeing the life change because they're missing one of the components as far as they know they're preaching holiness. But if the trigger's not there or if the spring's not working, then the whole gospel breaks down. Does that make sense? So I'm asking this group of smart Bible heads and yeah, I'll save the acronyms. What are the irreducible parts of the holiness message. Now, again, this is cross-disciplinary from sociological to psychological neuroscience, by the way, a PhD from Oxford University in neuroscience with a master's degree in theology. Now, there's a bipolar dude if you ever heard one. (laughs) Here's what we came up with. There are probably four. And if... If I'm teaching this message to my church, my message must have some ingredients in these four categories. One of them is the optimism of grace. If you want me to put that in a propositional phrase, I'd put it like this. Our message, our bold message to this world, preachers, is simply this. God has the power to change a person completely from the inside out. Go tell them that. God can change, watch my eyes, not only the actions of a person, but he can change the thought processes before those actions occur. Watch this, I'll raise you one. He can even change the desires that come before those thoughts. He can even change the instincts, the gut reaction. of the desire that comes before the thought that precedes the action. He can even change the bent of a person so that they were once wired one way and now they are miraculously wired another, like he changes water into wine. At the smallest molecular level, he changes the nature and the essence of a thing from one thing into another inexplicably God can do that. Say that Sunday in some form. Use your language, your illustrations, but tell them that that's true. If you were born with certain inclinations, those inclinations can be changed, sometimes slowly, sometimes suddenly but they can be changed like water can be turned into wine. It was not water that tasted like wine. It was wine. And it was better than the stuff they were drinking, which means they were not from the holiness tradition. That's the first one. One of the ministries in our church lately has been to a strip club. We send a couple of women, yes, always women, relax. (laughs) Guys are like, can I go? (laughs) You do edit this, right? And what we found, I, I, I will repeat a little bit what I said yesterday morning in chapel. What we found is that these women are trapped in a life that they want no part of, but they have no other way to do it. Most of them are middle-aged. Almost all of them are married. All of them have had children. Their bodies are not presentable at this time in their lives to be standing up and dancing for money. 
They have to pay the dance. They don't get paid. The only money they get is what people put in their lingerie. And so it is in their best interest to really flaunt it for as long as they can and get the guys liquored up until they can make enough money to go home and feed their kids. One of them said she was prostitute at the age of 11. She said, this is a promotion. I don't have to sleep with these guys. At the foyer is a booth, foyer, <laughs> lobby is a box that our gals put out there for them to submit prayer requests. And much of the time, their prayer request is simply, if you have any extra size four tall children's clothes, my son needs a uniform to go to school. But on one particular day, there were two prayer requests, and one of the prayer requests said, please pray that God will change me. And Sia, who leads this ministry, took a photo of that and she sent it to me email and she put a note on it that said, Pastor Steve, please note that the woman does not want to be forgiven. She wants to be changed. Listen to me. She's probably been forgiven her entire life of something. And your message of salvation to her is that she does not need to spend the rest of her life apologizing to God, staying current with the last sin. She can actually have an entirely new nature. Use your stories, but get up Sunday and blast that thing from your pulpits. That is hugely optimistic. I'll move faster now. The second component in this gospel is the magic, I can't think of a better word, of the Holy Spirit. If I were to put it in a propositional form, I would say stand up on Sunday and make sure people know that God not only calls them to be different, but everything God calls us to be, He will do. You don't have to make this happen. Make sure you tell them that or you'll burn them out in legalism. Tell them God himself will set his people free, but God has the power to do the thing in you that he is calling you to do. And so we must, as one of my friends says, we must act on the provisions of God until we have the intervention of God. And that will change our lives. That's a huge help. I'm in a session listening to someone in our church speak on a side room at the university. And when he was done, I was just blown away. He gave a presentation, somewhat almost of the gospel, but it's appeal to society. And I walked up afterward and I was talking to one of our other members, Charles Bressler, who's this Tolkien, Lewis, Chesterton sketch, uh, scholar. He also lectures at Oxford. The dude is more wattage north of the neck. He could light half of Ontario. And I'm talking to this guy, and I just said, my goodness, that was an amazing presentation, wasn't it? He said, troubles me a little bit. Why? He said, there's no magic. What do you mean? He said, in every good fairy tale, there is a moment where the magic occurs, something supernatural. 
the frog becomes a prince. The beast is turned into the beauty, never at the will and the work of the individual themselves, always from someone else on the outside. I didn't hear the magic. I thought to myself, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. And so we must revitalize in our preaching a fresh emphasis of teaching on the Holy Spirit because that will actually liberate people into our sermons rather than raise the bar and keep making them climb up to our sermons. Third, the communion of saints. If I were to put this in propositional form, I would put it something like this. The key to your potential lies in someone else. Evangelists and teachers don't make holy people. It takes a church to make a person holy. Put that to you a little differently. You cannot be a sanctified individual any more than you can be a one-man trinity. Not because God won't let you, but because it's a contradiction in terms. For in the beginning was not the solitude of one, but the communion of three. Therefore, if what it means to be sanctified is to be remade in the image of God, he does that by bringing us into community with other people. Sanctification, holiness, is not only about union with God, it's actually about bringing us into union with other people around us. They are the body, the corpus, the flesh of Christ. Tell them that. Preach on the church and raise the estimation that people have of your church. And tell them that what they are striving to become is already present somewhere in the room. It just hasn't made itself evident yet, but it's already here. The Holy Spirit has embedded it into our collective DNA. We are the way He transforms people through the Holy Spirit. That's a powerful, liberating message. Are you still with me? Because it's kind of quiet in here. The fourth trigger. Is the paradox of love. After God has made us holy. we will quite often not feel like it. 
This was one of my issues with Phoebe Palmer. That's as far as I'll go on that. Um, the people who are filled are those who continue. The term is present tense, by the way, who continue to hunger and thirst. The ones who believe they are filled and no longer hunger and thirst are actually empty. So part of what it means to be holy people is, as A.W. Tozer put it, is to have found God and yet to pursue Him. You seek after one you already have, but you seek Him in a fuller extent, in a degree. So preach a message with an open potential. Preach a message that expands the horizons of the life that people could have. Where people become fully alive and not just the walking dead. And this is a paradox. I'm in Florida and this guy comes up to me afterwards and he's pretty frustrated about this doctrine of holiness and he says... um, you know, I don't get this whole thing. You, you talk about God, about God being easy to please and yet hard to impress. Um, I, 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 this is frustrating to me. He said, I always feel like it's this bar and I'm climbing as fast as I can to try to reach the bar. And right when I reach it, it's like the standard just got raised and I can't, I can't reach that. It's my, my whole life is about trying to reach the standard of what God wants. You, you see what he's doing? He's creating a model of something that is external. Holiness is outside of me, and I'm always clamoring to try to reach it. Holiness, holiness is new wine, man. You drink it. And it animates you. It's not the waters of ceremonial cleansing. It's the new wine that came from the water of ceremonial cleansing, And it's inside of you, and it expresses itself from out. So it's love. It's not just obedience. It's love. The most obedient place in the cosmos is hell. Because there, all they have is obedience. But in the kingdom of God, it's a kingdom of love where he rules us with love from the inside and pulls us irresistibly to himself. That's a liberating message. said to the young guy, so so you're married. His wife was right next to him. Yeah, yeah, I am. How long? Just about a year. Congratulations. They said it never last. Said, do you love your wife? He goes, yes. I said, good answer. Do you love her as much as you should? 
He went, no? She goes, good answer. I said, so let me get this right. You love her with all of your heart, but you do not love her as much as you should. So she's easy to please, but hard to impress. He goes, yeah, that's just about right. I said, that's a holy love. That's not a bar you're trying to reach. That's something that comes from inside of you that you cannot stop. We're at a time in history, church, where uh, it is possible to say things that we could not have said 40 years ago. 33 years ago, I started in the ministry. And I was preaching one gospel, and I find myself today preaching a fundamentally different gospel. And I won't spend a lot of time telling you the difference, but I want you to, if I can, I think it's essential as preachers of this message that we seize the day that we are in. What, what I noticed was that in the doctrine of the church, there are tendencies to say two things that feel opposite one another, but they're both true. And what happens at any era in history is the era will seize one of these tendencies and build an entire gospel around that tendency. And so as the theological trend starts to move to another tendency, the opposite tendency, if we keep our gospel stuck on the one we used to have, it will feel irrelevant. So I'm telling you, now's the time to adjust the gospel according to the theological shifts that have occurred, and it makes it really, really opportunistic to talk about this message that we just talked about. One of the fundamental shifts in theology in our culture right now is the shift from God is one to God is three. ought to use that to our advantage. Forty years ago, we were so afraid of the Eastern religions and afraid of the cults that we insisted God was one. We're no longer worried about them. And so we're now saying that God is three. And we're just as right as we were before, but it opens up possibilities for saying things that we couldn't say 40 years ago because the culture's now ready to listen to it. And if we can get in front of it, we can lead the culture who's already asking questions about this to the message of holiness. Does that make sense? Now we know that God is a community where each person in the community does not possess anything of their own, but has completely surrendered what they possess, glory and power, to the other two members who all the while have surrendered theirs to him. So it's self-deferring. We ought to leverage that for our messages on the church and our messages on marriage to say that what God is actually doing in marriage and in the church is creating pockets 
of holiness where he has colonized the triune God on the earth. Say, put that a little more crassly so I'll get it. To the extent that my marriage does not imitate the union between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's still affected by the fall. So you're no longer telling people just to stay married. You're telling them they're not married enough. And that's a holiness message. Raise the stakes. One of the fundamental shifts that's occurred in our culture is the shift from Jesus is the Son of God to Jesus is the Son of Man. When we say Jesus is the Son of God, we are emphasizing His divinity. When we say Jesus is the Son of Man, we're emphasizing His humanity. And I'm telling you today, the humanity of God is all in. And it's an opportunistic time to stand up and say, can I talk to you about what it means for Jesus to be human? About 12 years ago, I'm in a back office preparing for a Christmas sermon. I read a copy of Carl Barth's Humanity of God, I got halfway through it and I was so rattled by what he said that I put the thing down and I started to choke up with tears and I walked out of the room. I could not believe what I was reading. In that little piece, Bart was lecturing and he said, I stood in this lecture hall 20 years ago and I told you that God was such and such and such and such and I'm telling you today that I had it wrong exactly where I had it right. He said, I gave you a God of the philosophers. I boxed his ears. I hemmed him in. I told you that God was holy other. Today I'm telling you he is holy us. That just as Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of God, he is also the perfect revelation of man. So that when you look at Jesus Christ, you are not only seeing what God is, you are also seeing what man can become in his humanity. That's a remarkable statement. That's when I put it down and I said, man, that is too much. This college church, they burn their heretics. They don't vote them out. <laughs> I walked around the church. I found a corner room, dimly lit room, and I started to pray. And I said, God, I don't think I know you very well, but I'm starting to have thoughts that feel really comfortable to me, and it's changing everything. And I shouldn't have these thoughts. Should I? <laughs> I felt the ceiling was being lifted. Went back in, sat down, finished the piece, and partway through it, Bart said, and when we say these things, we are either speaking unutterable blasphemies or we are singing the song of the redeemed. Couldn't believe it. Read my mind. For the next month, I struggled with the humanity of Jesus. How could he be so human? Then it occurred to me one day, I was not struggling with Jesus' humanity. I was struggling with my own. And I kept imposing my humanity onto his. 
when in fact what he was saying to me was, Steve, I am not human like you are human. You could be a human like I was a human. And the roof in my preaching just went, I wrote two short sentences to myself. One of them was, God endures what we cannot accept. I have limitations, I have flaws, but I have this concept of perfection in my mind that says, if only I were like Jesus, then I wouldn't lose, then I wouldn't get cancer, then I would have all of the answers, then my troubled childhood would go away, if only I had his humanity. I had it wrong. I couldn't accept the parts of my humanity that maimed me. It never occurred to me that if he was human as I was human, maybe that stuff would have happened to him too. The other thing I wrote down was, too often I endure what God cannot accept. I coddle things and call them human nature that say it's just the way we are, but it's not the way he is. Isn't it odd, church, that this is a time in history when society is ready to embrace the humanity of Christ and at that same time in our theological history, listen to me, the church is adding to its list of sins it's willing to tolerate. That they're willing to brush under the rug of humanity. So I'm at a church in North Michigan, finished preaching that sermon. They have a brief altar call. Guy comes down. He's praying right here. And in the middle of the counseling thing, his pastor comes up, puts his arm around the guy, and starts to pray. I look at the guy, and I say, how can I pray for you more intentionally? The man looks at me, and he's frustrated. There's tears now coming down his face, and he says, I am such a failure. My entire life, I have tried to do what is right, and I am 55 stinking years old, and I'm still looking at porn sites. I've been married more than 30 years, and I can't put that stuff down. His pastor puts his arm around the guy, and before I can say a word, he says, Oh, Bob, listen to me. We were born with desires that are only human. You may wrestle with these things, but you won't wrestle with them when you get older. They're just part of what it means for you to be human. They're part of your human nature. Bob looked at his pastor and said, excuse me, pastor, but if these things are not in the nature of Jesus Christ, then they shouldn't be in the nature of mine. And I thought to myself, we ordained the wrong guy. (laughs) You stand up and tell them Sunday that if Jesus was human as you are human, and he certainly was. Gregory Nazianzus says, what he did not become, he cannot redeem. He was your kind of humanity, not some other kind. That's a heresy. You stand up and tell him on Sunday that if Jesus was as human as you were or are, and he certainly was, 
then you can be as fully human as he is. And that's a big, hairy deal. It really is. That will blow the roof off of people's potential. All right. I'll stop there. Church, we are called every Sunday to have thoughts that people cannot have for themselves. They do not pay us to get notes from the bottom of a study Bible. They pay us to come up with thoughts that people are not capable of having themselves. That means, as you've heard, we read, we exegete, we diagnose culture, and we let it simmer for a long time. But on top of all those other things you've heard it means, it means it is our job to consistently raise the potential that people have for their gospel. It's way better than they imagined. And it means that this is an amazing time for you and I to be preachers of that gospel. It's an amazing time to have the gospel that we have. This is an opportunistic moment, and the culture already has the interests. We only need to send a fleet, that's you, in front of them to say, here's what it really means for God to be as we say he is. Last verse of his hymn to the church, Charles Wesley put it like this. Finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation, perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and grace. Jesus Your gospel is far more mystical than our paint-by-number sermons could ever capture. Your gospel deserves all the time we give it. And if we spend 50 years cranking out these sermons, we've not scraped the surface of the depths of your gospel but we can have more and we can have it now. Will you so inspire us and move us and prompt us and put the people around us to help us to be better proclaimers of that truth so that we may set your people free, free indeed. In your great name I pray, church said. For you, all the people that put this conference together, I make a pledge to you. I will wash their feet. They've washed our feet during the last several days. I will do that in your name. Steve, thank you. Lenny, thank you. Peter, thank you. 
everyone that put all the things together, most of them, you don't even know what they did. I will thank them and I will wash their feet for you. I'm going to ask Mark, if you would do me a favor. Um, I have no voice whatsoever. I'm going to ask Mark if you would come and to lead us in the doxology that we might pray that together, sing that together as our way of saying thanks to all the investment that God put into these people that just washed our feet. Mark, would you come? Let's stand to sing it together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Father, through the foolishness of preaching, it pleased you to save people. To that mission we go, with your anointing, with your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for our brothers and sisters who share this great mission together in this corner of your harvest field. We pray, God, for the greatest days ever in your kingdom in the months to come. And we believe it together in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Drive safely.